0: Welcome back, and yes, it is Monday, April 19th, 2021, as we head into Hour 2. As we do every Monday, we do it with Brandon Weikert, publisher of The Weikert Report, com. W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T is how Brandon spells his last name. He's also the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, and we have him on for uh, mostly uh, foreign uh, and international policy, but we wade into some domestic stuff as well. And um Branton, uh first of all, welcome back. Hope you had a good weekend.
1: Uh I I did. I, I came back from DC and I was gonna have to turn around and go back up, but I, I luckily didn't have to.
0: Good. I uh I noticed uh today's stories, New York Times obviously leads this kind of stuff, but uh broke through a lot of other cable shows too, is how many different things are coming at the Joe Biden administration internationally, uh, foreign uh, affairs-wise. Everything from China uh, entering Taiwan, uh, air territory to you name it. You wrote an important piece for the Asia Times on Russia. I want to get to that. But before we do, with all the regions you and I talk about so often, one we haven't in a while, and it was kind of on my mind today today, with uh, the announcement that Raul Castro is stepping down from the leadership of the right. C- Cuban um, Communist Party. Cuba, Cuba Cuba's right. been on my mind a little bit. And I was uh, yeah. just checking out how they've been doing since uh, Jeff Flake and Barack Obama restored um, normalcy <laughs> to them. And it looks like they got worse. Surprise, yeah, surprise. Yeah, yeah. Things are not good. And you've yeah. been writing about Cuba for a long time now, I especially have. I uh, its nexus with Venezuela and Iran. But you talk to me. Talk to me about Cuba, what we get wrong, what we get right. Brandon, I think you may have hit your mute button just at the exact wrong time. Are you on mute by chance? Brandon, did we lose him? I heard there was another show that had these problems earlier today. See if brandon's now you do you want yeah put him on hold and uh see if you, if you can get him back. That would be great um, one of one of the reasons that Brandon has been so focused on Cuba and he'll tell you in a few moments when we get him back on the line is that Cuba has played a central role. Truly, central centrifugal role in um, in the nexus between Venezuela and Iran, especially when it comes to concerns in our hemisphere, and the idea that uh, Venezuela not only has Cuban troops in its military, and that there's advice going both ways, and that we have Hezbollah in Venezuela, it becomes a very toxic confluence. Of concerns with the worst elements, communism, married to communism, married to potential terrorism, right? Um, and by communism, we 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 don't mean any kind of soft communism. We mean hardcore Chavez-esque, Venezuelan Castro-esque communism. The funny thing about these fights with these countries, ideologically, that we tend to step away from as Americans, and we can't, is the notion that, you know, we we can kind of, as life goes on, on a daily basis, dismiss concerns about places like Cuba, places like Venezuela. How many times in a given day are we going to have any interaction with anyone from there or those places anyway? Very little. Very little. So it's easy not to have to take them too terribly seriously. But do you know who takes those regimes and tyrannies and interests of expansion seriously? Cuba and Venezuela do. These countries do. They take it so seriously that they don't trust the people to take it seriously enough, if you will. So they take it so seriously they are willing to engage in all manner of human and civil rights violations. Now, I think we did get Brandon back. Brandon, are we? Are, do we have you back?
1: Yes. Yes, I don't know what happened. <laughs> oh,
0: who, <laughs> was, who knows? Was... <laughs> who knows? Let me tee it up for you again, yes. and we'll probably yeah. hit the break and we can resume it. But let me tee it up for you okay. this way. You've been writing about Cuba a long time. Your concerns uh, about Cuba seem to have um, been the same that I have, but generally unaddressed by successive state departments, along with an unwillingness to understand and appreciate how important it is of a nexus country between Iran and Venezuela. There, I laid it out, but you tell me why Cuba concerns you.
1: Yeah, well, basically, that's exactly what it is. Even after Fidel was no longer running the country, his brother was. uh, It continued to be this force of communism and anti-Americanism, through uh, Cuba, Iran was able to gain access to the Western Hemisphere, specifically into Venezuela, and then they've leaped from, from Venezuela into Brazil, into Paraguay, and throughout the region, so much so that Mossad is now having to give counterterrorism advice to uh, Paraguay because they're dealing with a huge insurgency issue that's, I think, being fueled by Iranian intelligence services. Uh, China has and Russia both have gained access To the region because of their relationship with cuba north korea oddly enough is gaining access to the region because of their relationship with cuba and we keep ignoring this problem cuba has not changed the regime there's the same no matter who's in charge it is an ideologically communist entity and they hate america and they are doing whatever they can to undermine america's role in the region and that's that's and nobody seems to get that in washington
0: The point I was just making before we reconnected you is um, you know, it's easy for average Americans or even elected officials to not think very much about Cuba or Venezuela, to not really take concerns about Cuba and Venezuela very seriously. After all, there's right. not that much interaction on a daily or weekly or monthly basis we have with Cuba or Venezuela. But there is uh, an institution or a couple of institutions that do take them super seriously, and that's the Cuban and Venezuelan leadership. They take themselves right. very right. seriously, so much so that right. they're, as I was saying, willing to engage in all manner of dictatorial um, uh, authoritarianism and human rights abuse. They take themselves right. seriously, and we can that's either right. confront it and take them as seriously as they do – or we can fall asleep.
1: That's right. And Cuba, remind, I remind everybody that Cuba was the real reason why Venezuela ultimately went into the hands of the now deceased Hugo Chavez. Right. I mean, it was Cuban meddling going back to the late 70s and early 80s that ultimately created revolutionary conditions they were supporting if i remember it was che guevara right. uh, in venezuela and he never could make it happen and we got him before them but the ideas and the presence of cuban intelligence operatives remained very prevalent so much so that by the 90s when the economy started to turn upside down there the the position for for chavez to come in and try to start his revolution was was perfect and and from there uh you know we now have the regime in venezuela that we have and it's you can draw a direct line from the chavismo regime today in Venezuela to Havana, Cuba. And uh, it will continue to be an issue for us, and we ignore it at our own peril. I was saying two years ago when the Trump administration was almost obsessively trying to figure out how to overthrow the chavismo regime in Venezuela, I was telling people, forget about that. That's too, that's too difficult of a task. We should leave that to the Colombians and the Brazilians, because they're the bigger powers in that part of the world, and they have more skin in the game than we do. What the Americans should be doing is finally overthrowing, through whatever means possible, the, the uh, regime in Havana, mm-hmm. because that's the big issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you on that. And one of the things I want to caution, I, I think I'm right to do this, caution against is this push that now that Raul Castro is gone – things will move in an even more normal direction or more liberalizing direction. And that is just not going to be the case here. Right. That is not the. Any more inst- than
1: it was in China. Right. When we opened up to China.
0: That's you a know, very, that's thing. a very good point. Any more than it was opening China. But the successors to them are often were are, to them are just as bad as they are. And well,
1: they're worse because they're more competent. And that's, they a crazy. that's a fair point.
0: That's a fair point. It's a younger generation with a lot more intelligence and competence. Right. Um, that's a very fair point. So, Brandon, when, when we come back, whether you want to talk about Central America or um, the Caribbean – or you want to talk about China, or your piece on Russia, you let me know. But the incoming this administration's going to have to deal with is going to, is going to be tremendous. And God knows what of Afghanistan. I'd love to get your take on that, too.
1: I will love to talk about all great, of that.
0: Great, great, great. We'll do so when we come back with Brandon Weichert, okay. publisher of The Weichert Report. TheWeichertReport.com. Be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Brandon Weikert with us. He's the publisher of The Weikert Report and author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Brandon, uh, did you want to talk about um, the various threats facing uh, the Biden administration coming uh, their way? Uh, or do you want to start with your column on Russia and the Asia Times? I want to do both with you.
1: Well, well. The- they're all linked. They're all linked. I mean, the bottom line is the, the bottom line is this. Um, we are now at a point in our nation's history um, that we haven't been in probably since the 1930s, where we are now living in a world system that is not dominated by any single one power, and where actually the most dominant power, in this case the United States, is playing the role that the British Empire did in the 1930s and early 40s. It's a declining power. And uh, it's in serious trouble. It's hobbled. It can't quite figure out how to get away from this sort of uh, uh, very weak position it's in, so it's trying to do its best to maintain all of the commitments it's built up over the last century, and it cannot do it. Um, it simply can't. We're, we're being completely overstretched. And our enemies, which are mostly located in Eurasia, that's Europe and Asia, they are in a position of relative strength, or rather increasing strength, particularly China, but also Russia in specific areas. And they all know that we are far over the horizon. We only have a small force that's being deployed everywhere at once. And so imperial overstretch is now—the Paul Kennedy thesis from the 80s is actually now becoming a reality. And the two powers of Eurasia, Russia and China, are trying to probe and prod that overstretched America and see where they can snap that power in half. And so Russia's doing it on Ukraine. China's doing it in in the South and East China Sea and Taiwan. And by the way, in many respects, particularly as it relates to Russia— the United States is being dragged into a fight with nuclear-armed Russia, not because it wants to be, but because its, its Ukrainian so-called ally is so desperate to reclaim territory that was stolen from it, Crimea, in 2014, that they will do whatever it takes to drag the Americans into a face-to-face confrontation with Russia, and this is a fight that we will not win. We will lose this fight, and it's going to be very bad.
0: On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being active war, uh, where are we we on this slope that that, that barrels us towards this war? Are we at a 3? Were we at a 2? Are we at a 5? Were we at a 4? Well, it's
1: not going to be full-scale war. It's going to be hybrid war. It's going to be what we saw in in Georgia in 2008. It's going to be what we saw in Ukraine in 2014. Uh, this is a continuation of the salami slice strategy that Putin has uh, has pioneered. And uh, the bottom line is we are about an 8 out of 10. And I would say in wow. the next three weeks are going to determine whether or not Putin is going to take eastern Ukraine. I think he's going to. I think he has to. If you're sitting in Kiev, I mean, rather, if you're sitting in Moscow, you're thinking you don't have a choice. Uh, and plus, you think the Americans are not going to pull the trigger. So pardon the expression. Uh, that this is all bluster. And let me tell you something. If Putin decides to pull the trigger and drop the hammer on eastern Ukraine and the Ukrainians are forced to go to war, they're going to get pounced. They're going to call on the Americans and the Europeans. The Europeans definitely are not going to be willing to go to war for Kiev. Uh, the Americans probably won't either any more than we were in Georgia in 08. Uh, and then what's going to happen is Putin's going to get eastern Ukraine and then the Chinese are going to be watching this going, "Aha." So the red lines don't matter that Biden talks about. So then we're going to be able in China now to go after what we want in Taiwan or in South China Sea. And uh, and, and so this is the danger of this kind of kind of feckless humanitarian warfare that the Biden administration is, is pioneering. Uh, it's very, very bad strategy, and it will lead to us losing a lot of faith and a lot of ground in these critical areas.
0: What do you say, Brandon, about that concern mixed with the, the 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 traditional view an ally of America had, whether that traditional ally is, uh, in this case, Ukraine or perhaps Taiwan? I mean, they need to hear something from the United States, don't they? Or don't they?
1: Yes. And as I said in my article at The Asia Times, the President Biden needs to pick up the phone to President Zelensky and say that your country was wronged in 2014, we will continue to sell you know, assistance to you, we will continue to do what we have to in terms of trade, and we will continue to say that it was wrong what happened to you with Crimea in 2014, but your country is not worth the bones of a single American GI. And furthermore, neither Paris nor Berlin or any other, maybe, maybe the Eastern Europeans might, but besides Eastern Europe, no other European ally and no Canadian ally is going to go to war for Ukraine. It's just not going to happen. It's not. So we're going to do all this, you know, this, this dance in the public where we're blustering and we're putting our, our reputation on the line. We're putting the reputation of NATO on the line. And remember, Ukraine is not a NATO member. Uh, and we're, we're going to do all of this for a non-NATO member. And the Russians are going to take what they want anyway. The Ukrainians are going to beg for our assistance. And at the end of the day, it will not come. And so if anybody thinks that's going to be a better outcome for us than just keeping our mouth shut and telling Zelensky, be happy with what you got right now because the alternative is going to be far worse. If anybody thinks that that, that's not the way to go, they're nuts because nobody's going to war for Ukraine in the West. It is not going to happen.
0: And I agree with that. But is there a concern somewhere around the time 1937 people said no one's going to go to war for danzig is there a concern that it doesn't stop at the ukraine
1: um there there is by it i mean russia
0: by it i mean russia is there a concern that we could be looking at other you know i mean does turkey get nervous does
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a mentor tell me. So what? We're just not going to. We're going to let them walk all the way to the Iberian. Okay. Case. So well, that's that. That's no, that's another yeah, way to put it. No. Okay. <laughs> no. The, 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 you have to understand that 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 Putinist Russia is not Nazi Germany, okay. right? Nazi Germany was in a was a was an offensively minded uh, power. They were. De- I mean, they were dedicated to uh, world domination. Russia has made it very clear that at the end of the day, they want a sphere of influence. Now, I don't think we should give them that sphere of influence, but in certain instances, we're going to have to cede ground. So, for instance, Russia has designs for Poland. We will never allow them to have Poland. First of all, Poland's a NATO member. Second of all, Poland is far more competent and capable of of a military ally with stronger leadership than the countries in, say, like Ukraine. That's just the way it is. And so Ukraine is not a NATO member, and so they are going to have to either deal with what they've got now or be willing to lose a lot more. Um, and so this is not a replication of the 1930s with Hitler. This is not. Uh, Russia has very sp- specific aims. They want to go for non-NATO, low-hanging fruit with a lot of Russian-speaking uh, 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 people. So think about Russia in World War One. Less of less of Germany in World War Two.
0: Uh-huh. That's okay. what
1: Putin's playing, okay. and so there are ultimately going to be limitations to what Putin can accomplish. Not just because of the issue of not having enough Russian-speaking populations, but also militarily, there are limitations to what he can accomplish in, th- in ways that were never imposed on the Nazis in the 19, late 30s, early 40s. Okay. So good. there are going to be good. inherent limitations.
0: All right, good. Now, we have to go to a break, Brandon, but now let's do that analysis on Taiwan. Is it Poland or is it Ukraine to us? I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brandon Weikert. We'll be right back. He's happy to take your calls, too, by the way, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Brandon Weikert with us. He's the publisher of The Weikert Report. Stories all over the place today about all the incoming foreign policy challenges this White House or the Biden administration is is, is going to be looking at or having to look at very soon. And uh, Brandon and I were just talking about uh, Europe. Let's talk a little bit about Asia, uh, Brandon, that analysis you did we won't fight for ukraine uh poland is a different story how how does taiwan fall along in, uh, along that uh, axis
1: well um i think that ultimately we will intervene on some level uh for taiwan it's a question of you know what level uh our strategic alliance with taiwan uh much like Many things we do between with Taiwan and China is purposely ambiguous to give us a lot of flexibility. Um, I think that whereas Washington policymakers have always thought that, quote, strategic ambiguity is a strength, I think it has been very dangerous mm. because it has not been clear to Beijing where we will stand, which is now giving them the opportunity, they think, to push us around because they think that relative to us, China's comprehensive national power is better or stronger. Uh, and they're going to try in, in Beijing to, 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 to implement their policy of getting us over the horizon back beyond, uh, to the, to the Hawaiian Islands, our power projection. Uh, and so I think that ultimately, I think China is getting ready to make a big move on Taiwan. I think it's going to be very risky, uh, for them because their technology in terms of their ability to do a, a amphibious landing on Taiwan is still relatively limited but they certainly can do aerial bombardment, they can do a blockade, they can really do some damage to Taiwan short of an invasion. And even in an invasion scenario, there is a chance they would be successful just with sheer numbers. Mm. Um, although their amphibious capability is still weak. Um, the American side, naval, we will try to respond. But if Beijing does a blinding attack on our satellites and prevents our our forces from being able to Uh, adequately, you know, move into the Taiwan Strait Uh, if they are able to sink or damage an American aircraft carrier. That's going to seriously stymie and stunt the will of American policymakers to risk U.S. forces. And I've spoken to a Taiwanese general in 2015, and he was going on and on and on about how, you know, we on Taiwan are conditioned, we will be able to basically become a fortress and, and withhold, withstand any siege the mainland throws at us. And I said, for how long? He said, for as much as, a, you know, at least, you know, as high as a month. I said, what happens after that? He goes, well, the Americans will come in and they'll mop up whatever we couldn't stop. No kidding. And I said, well, what happens if the Americans don't? And that's the real issue. And China thinks that we won't come in. And they're looking, by the way, at what's going on with Ukraine and Russia. And they're saying, well, we're kind of like Ch- Russia and uh, Taiwan's kind of like Ukraine and there's no formal treaty between America, an uh, explicit treaty between America and Taiwan. So why can't we try to take Taiwan, especially if America won't go to war for Ukraine with Russia? And so I think they're going to try to do something. And I think the real question is, does the Biden administration have the backbone and the will to send American forces to, def- to help defend? And Doug Bandau in uh, The American Conservative today argues we shouldn't, that we should not go in and we should just let Taiwan be and i think that's a, a grievous error especially because china is the greatest strategic threat the united states faces and if there is going to be a new superpower that could potentially displace america and change the rules of the international order it would be china and we need to worry about that and we need to do whatever we can to stop that from happening
0: um is china is china looking at us also brandon and how we react to a newly threatening north korea or is North Korea a whole other kettle of fish?
1: It's related. It's related, but I think that China. Uh, I think that China was very incensed when the Trump administration did that hail mary in 2017 uh, and met with Kim and actually had a good rapport with Kim, uh, at, you know, from Singapore onward. And I think that Beijing's great fear was that Pyongyang was going to move very precipitously away from Beijing's orbit, and if not into the American orbit, then into a more neutral position, which it did under the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. It did. Mm -hmm. But now that Biden has come in, and since the beginning of the Biden administration, uh, Joe Biden has made it clear that he wants to go to the pre-Trump way of handling uh, North Korea, which does not sit well with Pyongyang, so they have naturally gone back to China's orbit. And uh, so now I think we need to look at North Korea as related to China, but ultimately a sideshow. The real threat is China. And anytime we try to stand up to China, suddenly North Korea starts making noise. And that's because Pyongyang is taking somewhat orders from Beijing. And we need to do everything we can to divorce North Korea from China.
0: Beautiful. All right. Hold that thought. We'll be right back with more yeah. from Brandon White. Did you know that foam roofs here in the valley are a great option for many homes? That's where my friends at Trades Unlimited come into play. Not only do foam roofs help insulate from our extreme Arizona heat, but they also help insulate your home from exterior noises. And most importantly, they protect your house from water leaks. I've had the privilege of going down to their offices and their warehouses And meet the team over at Trades Unlimited. And I can tell you, I was hugely impressed with the people they have working for them. Both their quality and craftsmanship. The quality of the people they hire and the job that they do. Trades Unlimited was founded in 1994. They have an A-plus rating at the BBB. And after meeting with them, I can... A test as to why. Most of their business is by referral. That to me always tells a lot about a company. People are happy and come back and tell others about their great experience. That's why we love helping that word of mouth here on radio as well. Quality and service is what you will come to know with Trades Unlimited. It's hot here in Phoenix, and the hot summer sun is perfect for foam recoats. Protect your roof before the foam beneath the coating gets compromised. Don't wait until it's too late. Call my friends over at Trades Unlimited at 480 483. One seven seven five. That's four eight zero four eight three one seven seven five or find them online at tradesunlimited.com dot com for all your roofing needs. Delighted to have with us Brandon Weikert of the Weikert Report and his book, Winning Space. Nothing captures the imagination like space, or at least nothing used to capture the imagination like space. And that's um it's kind of an interesting place, Brandon, when you think about the next um the next phase of battle between countries we've been talking about, Russia, China, it's not going to be so much uh, so much the stuff on Earth anymore as, as the competition in space. Isn't that right?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's going to all play together. But space is sort of the linchpin. And, uh, you know, we, we don't often we forget that, for instance, NASA was a uh, really a Cold War fighting institute. It was a civilian program, but it was. Meant to beat the Soviets into space and eventually to the moon, and that they thought was beyond. And then, of course, the Cold War ended, and and NASA kind of existed without a mission after that point. So, I really haven't done anything with NASA since the end of the Cold War because the great competition was over. But now the new competition is on, and this time it's between multiple players, uh, and specifically related to China and Russia. You know, China, with their space program, has a very specific desire. They want to dominate space. And exploit the natural resources of which there's many uh, before the Americans can. And they want to. They want to acquire the strategic high ground of space in order to dominate the lower uh, terrestrial domains: land, sea, air, cyber on Earth. And the competition is not just, be- you know, between the Chinese military and the U.S. military in space. I mean, it's also between the civilian, quote unquote, civilian space programs. Uh, China just recently last week announced their intention within the next few years to send two very large uh, on probes to the edge of the solar system. Uh, now, this is something that we've, we've, we've done before, but it's, it's showing the world that China's catching up to the Americans, and they're doing it in a breakneck space. Uh, Russia, meanwhile, uh, you know, is now seriously talking about putting a uh, lunar operation uh, you know, on the moon, the South Pole of the moon, uh, by 2024, because they're now entering the fray again of this great space race, this new race for the moon. Uh, you know, And, and the, the Chinese are very insistent on getting to Mars with people before anyone else can. All of this is part of the new space race. All of this is part of this new competition, notably between China and America. And uh, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, also China and Russia are now starting to fuse their space program together in order to outpace the Americans who have a lot of advantages, particularly in the private sector space. So, you know, we are in a real uh interesting quandary here and most Americans, most of the Biden administration, they don't seem to recognize it. The Biden administration has called for an increase in spending on NASA, but most of that money is going to be dedicated to global warming initiatives Mm -hmm. and actually to cooperating with China. Uh, on on global warming, you know, issues, which is not the way that we should go. And is not designed for that. Really, it should go to the National Ocean- Oceanographic uh, uh, Administration, NOAA, uh, if you want to worry about global warming. That's what that's designed for, or the EPA. But we should not be sending money to NASA and then telling NASA, don't use it for space, use it for the Earth. That's ridiculous.
0: Whether it's space or Taiwan or Poland or really anywhere, Brandon, um, where we're facing competition, if not uh, threat. Um, Let me go ideological with you for a moment. Do you think this administration is portraying the right stuff? I have been consumed for a week over the fact that the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations broadcast to the world that we are a country steeped in white supremacy. Uh, Do we we have the right uh, message to the world here? Heard about now? About what we are and who we are? So, the Biden
1: administration has made it clear that there is an ideological component to what they're trying to do, specifically with the autocrats, Russia and China. They're trying to make this an argument of democratic human rights versus autocratic lack of human rights. And so the Biden administration, erroneously, I think, believes that by highlighting America's weaknesses and our historical failings first, it sort of negates any criticism the Chinese or Russians could lob at us for being, you know, previously having slavery and whatnot as we attack them for their human rights violations. I think that's a ridiculous way to go about it. I do think the Biden administration has carried over a lot of what the, the previous Trump administration started doing with China. And one of the biggest things they, they've done is to, for instance, ban semiconductor trade. No. Uh, between the United States and China. That's a good thing. Uh, Another thing is the ideological component. I think the Biden team is right to point out that this actually is an ideological fight as much as the Cold War was in the sense of its autocracy versus democracy. But now we get into the details, and I think that the, the Biden administration is, A, not going far enough with really sort of the hard, strategic, hard power things like sending forces to contain China, trying to build up the quadrilateral alliance between us, Japan, India, and um, uh, Australia, not doing enough sort of in the military and economic realm. What they're doing a lot of is this soft power, humanitarian, democracy stuff. But they're also doing that wrongly in the sense that, A, they're fixating too much on it, and B, like I said, they're opening their argument by saying, yeah, we kind of suck, but you know what? China and Russia suck more. That is not how you win people over. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, their, their hearts are in the right place, but they're they're going about it all wrong. And the problem is we don't have the time to play catch-up anymore because yeah. it's do or die now, and right now we're dying.
0: Brandon Weicker, you are a treasure. I learn so much from you every week, so does my audience. Uh, I thank you. We thank, thank, you. thank you very, very thank much, you. sir.
1: Thank you for having me. You
0: betcha. God bless you. We'll talk to you more next week. I really appreciate that. I have a lot more I want to do with you guys. Let me... Um, and a couple of interesting pieces of audio as well. Uh, but let me uh, invite your calls if you want to weigh in on anything Brandon has said or that we've said up until now, 602-508-0960. Bill Mars said something interesting again, and um, I don't know that we're going to get him to be a conservative like Dave Rubin or even Adam Carolla. But by the time this leftist thing, woke thing, is over, we might, we might get Bill Maher to at least stop endorsing the Democratic Party. We might, we might. He's he's nearly there. Wait till you hear what he said. We'll be right back. Portions of this show are brought to you by my friend, Solar Sandy. She brought integrity back to solar in Arizona. That's what she did. She also figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. It's so important when going solar, you do it the right way. Solar Sandy has the formula. She is the right way. She wants to put more of your hard-earned money back in your pocket. When you go solar, Solar Sandy will pay 12 months of your solar payments, any portion of your power bill for the first 12 months. And for the first 50 families that sign up with her, they will receive a $1,000 signing bonus. I've read the comments Solar Sandy gets. They're all just amazing. You heard the special right, though no solar panel payments, no power bill for 12 months and a $1000 bonus at signing. There's no better time to go solar with Solar Sandy than right now. Go to asksolarsandy.com again, that's asksolarsandy.com. Coming up, we're going to have um we're going to have a conversation in the next hour again about the police. I I I I was just so surprised to um To see the um, whiplashing of the Democratic Party, which couldn't have given two wits about the police most of last year, and then praised them to be on the hills on January 6th, 7th, and 8th, only to then stand silently by while the operatives in the woke matrix Take them on all over again, especially in a caucus led by Nancy Pelosi, whereby caucus members she has supported with money and endorsement have said all police are racist, have said we need to defund the police, not fix, defund, not reform, defund. She is presiding member over a caucus that has a congresswoman breaking local curfew to go into Minnesota and tell rioters on the streets to get busier, to get hotter, to not give in. This is not just the wingnuts of the Democratic Party. When Nancy Pelosi was asked about Maxine Waters' outburst, Nancy Pelosi said she has nothing to apologize for. Nothing. Even the judge in the Derek Chauvin trial said it was possibly an issue for appeal for Derek Chauvin if he is found guilty. Maxine Waters' statements. We're going to be talking a lot about the police when we come back, and I also want to talk about converting Bill Maher. We're getting them slowly, slowly, but it's not really us who are getting them. It's the left that's throwing them out. You'll hear more from him when we come back too. Don't go away. We'll be right back.